Um, I definitely enjoy teaching. I'm not a preacher. So this is going to be more of a classroom experience as we talk and, and, uh, and go over this tonight. So I would love to have participation, okay? You don't have to participate, but it would be great. Um, the song we were just seeing, um, as we go into what I'm talking about, is a great song because it's always re- such a reminder to always be reminded that it, it is by grace and grace alone that we are saved. Um, it is not by anything I can do or anything you can do. We are fully trusting in the, in the a bountiful um, grace that God gives us through Jesus. Um, what we're talking about tonight, as we divided up the nights to teach, as I was going through my time in the Lord in the morning, you know, I was saying, Lord, what would you have me teach on? And several different scriptures came to mind, but what kept coming back, I have to admit, if I, um, I so totally appreciate in our church that we do do time in the Old Testament. Part of the reason for that is I like the New Testament, <laughs> which is the Old Testament is awesome. It sets us all up for what Jesus is doing. But truly, the New Testament and what Jesus did and who he is just obviously speaks to all of our heart, but certainly speaks to my heart. So the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, if you have a red-letter Bible, it's all read for three chapters, um, which means it's worth spending time in because looking at the words of Jesus and what he taught is critical. So what we're going to be specifically talking about tonight is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Um, It's in the partway through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to read that for us now. So that's Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18. Jesus is speaking and says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on street corners to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now the first thing that probably strikes your mind is, um, how can you possibly cover all this in 
an evening of discussion, and there's no way we can. Each, each one of these, whether it's uh, giving to the needy, uh, Jesus teaching about prayer, or fasting, are tremendous studies in and of themselves, and, and a lot to cover. But Jesus basically is going through these acts of righteousness um, that I think are pretty critical, and we're going to cover them at least partially tonight. Um, number one, what, throwing out a question, what is righteousness and what does it mean to practice righteousness? Anyone want to even venture a guess? Be good, right? Right living. Absolutely. So, so being righteous is not necessarily complicated. And one thing to clarify, the righteousness of God in Christ means that we have been justified and declared righteous because that we have been cleansed by Jesus. That's a little bit of a different righteousness than the acts of righteousness we're talking about. And even though we're talking about acts of righteousness, and within each one of those verses, by the way, um, it says, God will reward you. Do our acts of righteousness gain us heaven? I see no shaking our head. Absolutely correct, right? The verse I always go to that, and there's a lot, is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And that says very strongly, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works that no man can boast. So it's very clear. We are saved by grace and grace alone. That being said, there's an expectation, right? Jesus had an expectation. And if you read through the New Testament, uh, I challenge you to find many places where Jesus said, well, just say you love me and that's enough. Jesus challenges us to follow him. Jesus challenges us to walk in his steps. If you love someone, there's, there has to be a response, right? I think we would all agree with that. You can't say I love someone and if there's no response, it, it just doesn't go. So, but, but again, just be clearly, um, we are saved by grace and grace alone. Interesting, early in the chapter, um, Jesus makes a couple pretty bold statements, as Jesus always does. Um, but one of the earlier ones in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount um, basically says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Anyone want to take a stab at if our righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees to get into heaven, how are we getting into heaven? You're not but you will, and our righteousness can surpass the, the Pharisees, right? How does our righteousness surpass the Pharisees? It's a righteousness by faith. We are declared righteous because we believe in Christ. That's exactly right. And one other thing, it's, you know, as, we are, as we're going into this, the opening verse of chapter 6 is really what's going to be an emphasis. Be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Now let's go back one other interesting verse that Jesus gives and says earlier in the same Sermon on the Mount, he basically says, when he says we're to be put our light before others. And that should be right. Yes, thank you. So you are the light of the world. A town, a, town built on a, hill, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. So right there, Jesus is saying, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
What's the difference between that and where it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them? What's the big difference? Yeah, are you doing good deeds and loving people and people see that and go, wow, that's, that's unique, right? As opposed to, hey, look at me, what I'm doing. That's exactly right. It's all about the heart and what we're, and what we're doing. So anyway, so let's jump into chapter six. Um, and again, that opening verse is pretty, pretty clear um, where he makes the differentiator. He says, be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. So it's really the matter of the heart and why are you doing your acts of righteousness? Are you doing them to please God and because you love others? Or are you doing to impress others and to out of your pride and other things? The three things we're going to cover tonight, again, is the, act, is the righteous act of giving, the righteous act of praying, and the righteous act of fasting. Um, all of which are good things. And clarify as we go into these, what, um, what distinctive word does he use when he talks about giving, praying, and fasting? When. He doesn't say if. Doesn't say if. He says when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast. And one thing I'm not going to do tonight, very clearly, I'm not going to tell you how much you should be giving. I'm not going to tell you how often or how long you should be praying. I'm not going to tell you how often you should be fasting because within the scriptures, it's really not well defined, right? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But what I would say is it does talk about all three. So again, let's jump into the first part about giving to the needy, um, beginning in that chat in verse two. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street corners to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may, so your giving may be in secret, and then your Father who sees what is done will reward you. Um, so there's a, there's a, number one, what's the benefit of giving? Giving to the needy. Clearly it's implied within that, right? You're helping others, people in need. So you're helping someone else. What else? Absolutely. So you can be a light shining on a hill by what you choose to do that people can see you. What else is the benefit of giving? God will repay you in any particular ways that God repays you? Um, number one, I think we would probably all agree in this room. God has given us whatever we have, correct? So we're really in charge of like using what God has. Is there a word for that? Stewardship. That's exactly right. Stewardship very clearly defines the concept that we don't own it. It's not ours. We're responsible for how it's handled, right? And are we going to be responsible stewards? The, 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 the alternative to being generous, to be giving, is to be covetous and really to hold on. Um, and that's never what Jesus teaches. Um, if you go to a couple different verses that talk about the, give, the giving that Jesus really looks at, in Mark 12, 41 through 44, you can look it up. It has to do, that's the giving of the widow's might. When Jesus is, is at the temple, all the rich people are going in and putting in lots of money. And obviously people see them putting in lots of money. And then a, then a poor widow goes in and puts in four copper coins. And Jesus said, I tell you, 
that that widow gave more than all the others because she gave out of her poverty, whereas everyone was getting, giving, giving out, of their, out of their excess. And I would, I would say that one of the key marks of that is the widow did not have a fear that God was going to take care of her. Even if she gave away all that she had, she was not afraid. So she wasn't afraid to give. Um, and I think that's something that, that is a strong encouragement. James 1.27, what's the definition of true religion? Anyone remember what that says? Taking care of orphans and widows in their need, right? Ties right into giving to the needy. Um, giving, again, um, is just demonstrating, too, that we're not holding on to it ourselves, and we are being generous. Um, also, I think we, everyone in this room would recognize the more you're able to give stuff away if you have the right attitude, the less you're possessed by it, right? People that really have a lot of stuff, it's easy to be really, I mean, it's classic to me. Do you know one thing America has, well, the West has, that almost probably no other country in the world has? Storage units. We fill up our house, and then we go get a storage unit to put stuff in. It's like, it's kind of ridiculous. And by the way, my garage is ridiculous. I look at my garage, and I'm like, how can I possibly have all this stuff? So anyway, um, giving away helps work on, on our generosity. And by the way, let's just go to the, the verse that's held up at every football game and every basketball game, James, John 3.16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Um, so, again, this whole giving idea, we did not initiate, God did, and we're just following that pattern. Um, I don't know if any of you recognize the name Jim Elliott. Uh, he and his wife had a pretty big impact on both Lori and I when we were young. We went to a conference. He was martyred in the late 1950s as a, as a missionary to Ecuador. He was killed by a, a, a group of uh, uh, natives that they were trying to reach out to. But a lot of his writings remained uh, and his wife, who ended up living with those, that same tribe for a period of time afterwards, uh, wrote a lot about him. And one of his great quotes was, if you have something that you own that you cannot give away, you don't own it, it owns you. And again, that's again, that's going what we're talking about. Um, are we going to be generous? Um, again, um, it's, Jesus is saying, when you give to the needy, and I had someone ask a question the other day, well, does that include our tithe? And I would say, yes, it does. Our, we, our church absolutely is involved in reaching out to the needy in a variety of ways. So that's absolutely part of it. And again, I'm not up here to tell you what that should look like. I think if you seek God and what God desires of you, he'll direct you to that. There's a great verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that I think does a really good job discussing this. Chapter nine, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. It says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so, then, so that in all things, at all times, Having all things that you need, you will abound in every good work. It's worth reading again. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 9. Remember this, whoever, spares, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided to give in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, 
at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Um, I think that is a very strong comment. And do we always believe verse 8 that says, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will be able to abound in every good work. I think that can be a challenge. And, you know, and this isn't, you know, we're in a tough time. There's a lot of people that are out of work. Uh, there, there are people that struggle. Um, but again, it goes back to this is not how much you have. It's honestly not even how much you give. It's your heart and your desire of what you're doing. You know, and that, that can look different to every, everyone. Um, and again, you don't have to go very far past that widow's mite when she put in her four copper coins to see that Jesus was, would give us a pass by saying, well, you know, it's been a tough week. I can't quite. No, I don't think that cuts it. You know, I think we need to be generous with what we're doing. Um, and again, the issue is never what other people see me doing. It's what God sees me doing, and it's never to impress others. You know, someone asked, as I, I was sharing, they said, what about these people who give these, uh, these big donations? I think if you don donate all the money and the stadium's named after you, that's your reward. <laughs> you get to be the stadium. I don't know if there's much more reward after that. Whereas, again, when you do it for God, when you do it without the trumpets, I think that's where the reward comes from. Um, so that's giving. So we're going to jump into prayer a little bit. Uh, and again, prayer can be a long, multi-sermon teaching discussion um, as well, but we're going to cover this tonight. Uh, beginning at verse 5. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, you have they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Um, so in terms of prayer, again, this is saying that our focus also needs to be between us and God, which is why we go to a dark corner. Now, I'm not totally, okay, I will say one of the heroes in my life is my wife. Lori is amazing, and she's been amazing ever since I've known her. Her faith is amazing, and she prays. Her gift, one of her gifts is prayer. And it's, it's interesting you read this. I don't think you're praying in front of other people now on street corners to gain benefit. <laughs> I think this was something unique to the Pharisees. They would stand, they would be, make proud, loud prayers in the front of, you know, I don't think that's what it's talking about. It's going back to the heart. I know my wife struggled frequently with being willing to pray with people in public because it's hard and it's kind of embarrassing and it's kind of challenging. So again, I, I think we need to be careful what we talk about here. It doesn't mean don't pray in public. It doesn't mean don't offer to pray in my office or in your office or your work or say, hey, can I pray for you? And honestly, I will, I will even say there's been times when I've met men for breakfast and we're at whatever, Seven Sons, and we've prayed. And I've heard feedback from them. Hey, I saw you were praying with someone. That's pretty cool. So, and, uh, so it all goes back to the state of the heart of, of why you're doing what we're doing. And I think there can be prideful prayers. Um, I certainly think there can be gossipy prayers. 
I think there's times in prayer services where people share and say things that probably maybe not should be said. But again, it always goes back to between us and God. Um, if you look at prayer within the Old and New Testament, obviously it is mentioned a lot. Um, anyone want to throw out some specific situations they can think about? Um, specifically, I'll say when Jesus prayed. What are some key times? Gethsemane? Absolutely. Um, and that's mentioned in a number of the Gospels. Uh, we'll go reverse order. I had that one last. Um, does anyone remember what Jesus was doing in Gethsemane? He was getting ready to be crucified. And he took his good buddies, and they were in the garden, and they went and prayed. And he prayed pretty intensely such that, you know, um, sweating his blood and was asking for the cup to be removed. So he was, he was preparing himself for a very hard time. Is that a purpose of prayer? I think so, absolutely. Other things, other times prayer is specifically mentioned. Absolutely. Yep, yep. I believe you. Did it specifically say that he prayed before he raised Lazarus? Other times. Long prayer, right? That's like two chapters of praying, right? Praying for the present believers, for future believers, uh, for the church. He prayed all night in chapter Luke before he picked his apostles. Um, he was up all night praying. Um, the, one of the first verses that I memorized as a young Christian was Mark one thirty four, where it says, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, uh, left the house, and went to a lonely place to pray. And what's disturbing about that verse is he pretty much had been up all night. So a lot of times I'll say, you know what, I had, a lot, I had a late night, Lord. I had a late night delivery. I don't really think I should have to get up and pray. Well, unfortunately, Christ was up healing, teaching all night long, and he still got up and went to an empty place to pray. Um, so again, and so he talks about that, and then he goes into a pattern of our prayer. And again, all of us know the Lord's Prayer. And basically, it's fairly straightforward. It's praise, petition, and, and confession is what's listed there. You're beginning with the Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now again, Jesus does not say how often we should be saying this prayer. He doesn't say, say this every day. Um, I suspect we probably need to say it every day. Um, and I think there's, because every day, it's important that we're lifting our Father up in praise. Every day, I think it's important that we're lifting some degree of petition for both others and for our own needs. Um, and I think what's interesting here is, if you really look at this, I think what Jesus almost focuses on the, mo on the most is that issue of forgiveness. Um, and there any reason why I would say that he emphasizes this issue of forgiveness? We all stop at, um, and lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. But Jesus goes on and says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others their sins, your fathers will not forgive you. Think about that statement for just a minute. How strong a statement is that? 
How important do you think it was to Jesus? By the way, if you go back to verse 12, forgive us our trespasses as we have already forgiven our debtors. Now clarify, I'm not a Greek scholar, but clearly the forgiven part is past tense. Jesus is assuming that we have forgiven our debtors. Why do you think Jesus focuses so strongly within our prayer of forgiving others? Absolutely. So there's a, there's a definite outcome with our relationship with God. How about our relationship? That's vertical. How about our relationship horizontally with others? Yes. Actually, that's a fabulous question. And I was just turning to that scripture right now, and we're going to talk about that. In, um, in Matthew chapter 18, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? By the way, let's clarify. What do you think Peter was doing there? wants a way out, he also thinks he's being generous. Because by the old law, it was three times you were supposed to forgive someone. So when Peter said, Lord, how many should I forgive? Seven times? I think he's expecting Jesus to go, wow, that's generous, Peter, to forgive someone seven times. Well, let's read that parable and expand on that a little bit. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against, or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus said, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, usually says denarii, by the way, but gold, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this point, the servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Word for word what he had said, by the way. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went to the, and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called in the servant, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. That is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. So does that, does that fairly answer that question pretty well? Um, so the point of this is, I think part of the reason Jesus has us in the Lord's Prayer, past tense forgiving, is we in that story are which ones? 
We're the greater debt. Okay, we have been forgiven our sins. We deserve hell and damnation. That's what each one of us deserve. All of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has forgiven our sins. I don't think God has a tremendous amount of tolerance when he has given us tremendous forgiveness that we're not being generous in our forgiveness to others. And by the way, what does lack of forgiveness do? Lack of forgiveness leads to bitterness, anger. It affects our ability to interact with other people. It affects our relationship with others. Forgiveness. A, a few years ago, I was sitting in my office and this, this patient of mine, very nice lady, very new age. I didn't know her that well. She came in so excited and she goes, I just, I've just written a new book. I've just written a new book, Radical Forgiveness. And she started to portray about how, how beneficial forgiveness was to everyone's life. I'm like, this is not new. <laughs> Radical forgiveness is Jesus, right? It's what we need, and it's what we need to be able to give to others. Um, so anyway, as he ends the verse on, on prayer, so again, not going to tell you how often you Now, my dear brother in Christ Brother Joseph, who I love and respect tremendously, who is the only one that I personally know that has calluses on his knees from praying so much, he would encourage that the average believer should pray for an hour a day. Um, and I can tell you uh, from a personal testimony, about four years ago, uh, when my son had a big conversion back to the Lord, I kind of had one of those middle-of-the-night experiences where God woke me up and I was up from about 2 a.m. My wife gets up to pray in the middle of the night all the time because she hears God directs her. When I wake up in the middle of the night, I assume it's to get a drink of water and go back to sleep. So that's my standard response usually in the middle of the night, honestly. Um, but this night, I literally had a night where I felt like God was in the room to me, challenging me on different things, humbling me, um, uh, a time of asking for forgiveness. And I was really challenged at that point one of the things I was challenged is, Dave, you exercise for at least an hour and a half a day. You need to spend at least that much time with me. So it's really been a pretty dramatic change for me in the last four years, not that I don't struggle of clearing your mind and all those things, of that time in the morning of getting up and making that choice of spending time in prayer and time in the Word. I personally think we need to be praying significantly every day because we're going to be challenged significantly every day. Um, but again, I'll let you seek that in your prayer time and what God would have you do. But Brother Joseph would encourage you. And by the way, do you know where he gets the hour a day from? Anyone want to guess? You already said the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember what Jesus said to, his, to Peter? Couldn't you, couldn't you stay with me for one hour? Um, and that's where Joseph, and Joseph wouldn't tell you it's a, by the way, Joseph would tell someone who's their full-time ministry they should be praying three, three hours a day. Um, so, <laughs> glad I'm not in full-time ministry. Um, but anyway, that's something between you and God. So um, last but not least, it says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. I t truly, I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, it's implied that we will be fasting. It's not an issue. What I find funny in the Western church, when I'm in a group of people, we'll start talking about fasting, and people go, well, you know, I'm going to fast from television for a week, or I'm going to fast from my computer for a week. And, you know, fasting can be any, and I'm not arguing that, fasting in the Bible was not eating. Why, why is that hard? 
I get hungry, right? When you fast, there's, there's consequences, right? Uh, although it's funny, um, we used to do a 36-hour famine with the kids to raise money for, for global, global uh, it was great. So we literally would not eat for 36 hours. We'd let them drink and stuff. And, and, and I literally had some of the kids come to me and say, you know what, um, it's not medically okay for me to fast. I'm like, well, actually, I'm a doctor. What's your problem that means you can't fast? And I have yet to have a kid that came up with a good excuse. I couldn't say, well, you can choose not to fast. That's okay, but it's not because you're medically can't able to do it. So, but anyway, so why don't we fast? It's uncomfortable. Anything else? We like food. Absolutely. Clea's making us dinner tonight. I can't wait to see. She told me it's a secret. I want to know what it is. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think all of those are, are very significant. Um, I, I personally think to some degree in the Western church, sometimes there's not fasting out of ignorance. I don't think it's typically taught. I mean, I haven't heard a lot of sermons spoke on fasting and whatever else. I had a, a, a good friend in the faith that challenged Lori and I to fast that started it. And then Joseph does a weekly fast, you know, that he does through his church. And that's, that's impacted us as well. So I think there is some degree of ignorance. I also think it's because it's hard. You know, none of us like to fast. It's just hard to go without food. That's awesome. And, in there, and, and there are, you need to be careful or if you have certain medical conditions, but that's exact, I, I agree with that. And so I think it's hard. I think we like food. I think there's not a lot of knowledge on it. I think there is some ignorance. I also think there's some rebellion. I think sometimes we just don't want to do it because we don't want to do it. And um, anyway, how about some examples in the Bible of key times of fasting that you guys can think of? I mean, there's a couple obvious ones. What's the big obvious one? That's a great, by the way, that's one of the ones I wrote down too. If you guys don't, haven't read the story of Esther, it's pretty phenomenal. The, the bad guy, is Haman, is, about, is going to destroy all the Jews. And Esther's uncle basically approaches her and said, you need to talk to the king. And she said, the king hasn't contacted me for months. And if I walk in and see the king without his permission, I'll be executed. And Mordecai says, well, you know what, God's, well, he doesn't actually say God. He said, God's, you're, the Jewish people are going to be saved. You and your house will all perish if you don't. And she goes, she basically says, okay, you fast and all your people fast. I'll fast and all my maidservants will fast. And I'll approach the king and let it go. And God, he points a scepter and lets her in. So the fasting was perfect. What's the biggest example of fasting you guys can think of? 40 days and 40 nights, right? Christ fasted for 40 days and 40 nights um, right before he started his ministry right? That was literally, he was, he the, was baptized, it, uh, the dove came upon him, and he was led out to the, the desert to be um, tempted for 40 days. Um, and first thing that happened when he was done fasting, what happened? After, or before, right before then, though. Yeah, Satan came to him, and major test of, major test of what was going on. So that fasting and praying I think was not only preparing him for his ministry, but was preparing him to deal with Satan showing up and talking to him. So any other thoughts about fasting or times of fasting and praying? I think that's correct. I came up with Paul and Barnabas. There were several Old Testaments where Nehemiah did before rebuilding the walls when the walls had been broken down. Uh, and so, 
So, yeah, so fasting, part of the Old Testament, part of the New Testament, called us. Um, and so we talked about why we're not fasting. It's hard. Maybe we're a bit ignorant about it. Maybe we're in rebellion about it and not wanting to do it. Um, any other reasons, by the way, that we might not fast? What's that? Lack of discipline. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Meaning, meaning it's physically hard what you're fasting to do. Yeah, and I, I would suggest that is one situation. Certain jobs might really prevent you from fasting if you were setting chokers out in the woods. That'd be pretty tough to fast for very long if you needed that energy. So, um, so what are the benefits of fasting? What do you guys think? Does that free up a lot of time? Not preparing a meal, not making the meal, not eating the meal, not cleaning up after the meal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Anything else? What else does fasting do? You think you hear better when you're fasting? <laughs> I, I think you do. I think you do. Uh, and again, I think this has to go back to the status of the heart of why you're fasting. I think sometimes if you're fasting in a bad mood, fasting may just make you in a badder mood, right? I mean, I have no doubt about that. If you're fasting with the right heart, because, you know, someone will come to me, and Lori and I do try to fast once a week. That's kind of our goal. Um, are you fasting for your health, right? And I personally think fasting is good for your health, you know, but are you fasting for your health? Are you fasting as a discipline to pray, to serve God, to grow in your relationship? Any other thoughts on what it, what it does? I wrote down a list. Um, Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ and was uh, kind of who Lori and I were very involved with that organization when we were in college, uh, wrote a significant book on fasting and, and was very much into fasting. And he was an amazing um, evangelist and discipler for Christ. Some of the lists he came up with, again, was that it was an expected discipline of the Old and New Testament. Developing a more intimate relationship with Christ um, and choosing to do hard things for Christ. And we all know when you, in a relationship, when you choose to do hard things for someone, you have a more intimate relationship. That's just, that just happens. It helps humbling yourself before God. Helps the Holy Spirit reveal true, your, your true spiritual condition. It helps also for you to recognize your brokenness, your need for repentance, and the needs for transformation in your life. And also, very strongly, he believes, which I agree with, is helps transform, transform your prayer life, um, meaning being able to see more, meaning being able to hear more, all those sort of other things. And I think that, I think, again, I think it's fairly hard to separate fasting and prayer. I think they kind of go hand in hand. When you're fasting, you're praying. That's my opinion, by the way, but I think they do go together. Um, so, again, as we're talking about these disciplines, again, giving to the needy, um, time in prayer, and fasting, if nowhere, again, does Jesus imply it's an if. Jesus states it's when you do all of these things. What I would encourage everyone who's listening, whether it's in the live stream or here, if there's area of these that you're not doing, do it. And I'm not going to, again, not going to tell you how much but start doing it. Um, I think, again, if you're doing it and they feel dry, 
I also think it's super helpful to have an accountability partner, someone who you're talking to, someone who you're sharing struggle with and on any of these. Um, and, and challenge yourself. Challenge yourself with what you want to do. Hey, I'm going to fast once a month. And by the way, how long do you fast? I'm not going to define that. Some people, it's a meal. Some people, it's 24 hours. Some people, it's, how long do you do it for, Theo? I've never done 21 days, okay? So I think the longest I've probably done is 48 hours, and it was probably a mistake and not on purpose. Um, that doesn't count, by the way. You get lost in the woods and don't have food. You can call it fasting, but it's not really, okay? It's not by choice. By the way, I did put that down as part of fasting. Fasting is something that you have chosen to do, that you're choosing to deny what you're doing. It's actually a self-denial thing. Um, and again, the benefit is not for my self-denial. The benefit is for me to grow my relationship with Christ. Did someone raise their hand? Yeah. God honored your decision, right? Um, so anyway, so key is, again, is the opening verse of, verse of chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. It doesn't say don't practice in front of others. It says don't do it to be seen by them. So if your motivation is so they can watch you, that's not good motivation. If it happens that someone's around when you're praying, or it happens that you're going to give something away then someone sees you, or someone point blank says, hey, Dave, why didn't you eat lunch with us? I think I can say, hey, I'm fasting today. I mean, that's not like to like say I'm great. It's an attitude of the heart. So if you're not doing any of these three things, I'm again emphasizing it's Jesus who says when you fast. And by the way, is there a reward from doing these things? He says yes. God will reward you. God will reward you. God will reward you. By the way, this kind of goes a little bit, what does God's rewards look like? I'm not going to answer because I don't know. But in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking, he says, Christ is the foundation. What you choose to build on that foundation, whether gold, silver, or precious stones, or hay, wood, and straw, it's going to be tested in the fire, right? And, you know, if it, if it survives the fire, you have more reward. If it doesn't survive the fire, you are saved, but as one escaping through the flames. And I joke with Lori all the time that I think I'm frequently a stop, drop, and roll Christian. You guys know what that means? If you get, get catch on fire, you're supposed to stop, drop, and roll. Well, that's not really the desire that any of us should have, right? It's not just to squeeze into heaven, although it's great to be into heaven. There are rewards that God will give as he gives. Don't know what that looks like. Don't know what that means, but it's probably pretty awesome if they're offering it. Um, so anyway... These are not only areas of righteousness, there's areas of discipline. Um, and again, I'm going to encourage you to start doing them, to start giving to the needy, to start praying regularly if you're not, and to start considering fasting on a regular basis. I think it's good for us as individuals and as a church as well. Was there another, was there a hand up? Yes, ma'am. Agreed. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's what, he's, what, what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians. When, when we are tried by fire, I think that's when, when God, at the end of our life, when God is judging what we chose to do, what he gave us. Um, and ultimately, yeah, everything here is going to be gone other than, you know, us and the word. So basically, I, yeah, that's exactly, it's, it's, it's those rewards in heaven. And what exactly that looks like, I don't know that I can tell you what that looks like.
Okay. Other questions or input or other thoughts? I think so. You know, I think, again, choosing, again, you know, it's interesting. Lori and I were just talking about this last night. There are certain religions that really focus on, what's the term, asceticism? I'm probably saying it wrong. John, is that right? Asceticism, where it's intense self-denial, right, of, for the point of self-denial. I'm not sure there's a point in that, right? I think the point of what Jesus calls us to do when we choose to fast, it's because we're choosing to put him first we're choosing to demonstrate obedience to him. Um, we're choosing to use that as a time where we're not doing other things and we can focus more. It's for the benefit of growing in our relationship with Christ, not for the discipline itself. I don't know that there's any benefit in and of itself of discipline. Um, I mean, in the short term, yes, but not in the long term. So, and freely give, yes. But I think it's definitely an off. Fasting is definitely, I believe, an offering to Christ. Other questions? comments all right well let's pray and um we're good father again we just thank you for this day and we just thank you for gathering us together as a church lord both here in the in the sanctuary and for for those streaming at home god we just thank you that you are such a generous god lord that you gave your son because you knew our greatest need was that we are sinners and god we need a savior god and you provided that lord we just pray that out of the outflow and response that we can just love you more. God, and in the midst of following you and, and, and seeking after you, Lord, we would just be um, recognition that we, we are stewards of what you have given us, Lord. And we can cheerfully give and we can abundantly give and not worry about whether we'll have enough, Lord. And that we would just, we would just reflect, that, reflect that generosity that you have, Lord, in our lives. God, we just pray that we would spend time in prayer. God, in a, in quiet rooms where we can focus on you and just enjoy your presence, Lord, and that we would be quick to forgive, Lord, as we have been so deeply forgiven, Lord. God, and we just thank you for also the opportunity to fast, Lord, that is, that is choosing to not do things that, are, that, are, that we like to do, Lord, and to just choose to deny ourselves, Lord, so we can serve you, Lord, and thank you that, that it is an offering to you, God, and that you bless that. God, you are so good, and we're just so thankful for your grace and that it is only through your grace that we are saved, and we are just um, pray that we respond in love towards you and those around us. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your presence, and we ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good night.